Hello and welcome to the podcast for the Health and Climate Change Report, launched and published online by The Lancet today, Wednesday, November the 25th, 2009. Without further ado, let's hear from The Lancet's editor, Dr. Richard Horton, and the main author of the report and the series that we're publishing in The Lancet, Professor Andy Haynes from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. This is the result of a collaboration that's extended over about eight or nine months. It's been a remarkable instance of cooperation between not just the scientists who you're going to hear from today, but also from the agencies and funders who have worked so hard to support this work. What you're going to hear about is some extraordinarily rigorous science and some extraordinarily important implications for the application of that science. The way we're going to run this is that Professor Andy Haynes is going to introduce the series. Please, take us through the series, Andy. As Richard said, this is really the result of a very intense period of uh, collaborative activity. It's brought together 55 scientists from nine uh, different countries to work together to look at the potential public health benefits of strategies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in, in four uh, main sectors. The, uh, the group of scientists was funded by, from a range of, of sources, and particularly uh, the Wellcome Trust coordinated these, this variety of funding sources. And I won't read them all out, but we're very grateful to all of them for their support to this program um, of work, as indeed I am to the many scientific colleagues that really put this um, uh, program of work at the forefront of their busy uh, schedules over the last few months. So what was the scope of, of the work? Much of the work up to now on climate change and health has focused quite naturally on the impacts of climate change on human health. And this uh, programme of work looks at it from a different perspective. It looks at the potential effects on public health of strategies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in these four important sectors. Household energy, urban land transport, food and agriculture, and electricity generation. And we chose those sectors because they're all important contributors to greenhouse gas emissions and they all have of course important impacts on human health. In addition to that we also looked at the health effects of short-lived greenhouse pollutant uh, emissions and up to now a lot of focus quite understandably has been on carbon dioxide which is a long-lived greenhouse gas and the paper that we, um, the, the number five in the series, looked at a, a different range of greenhouse uh, pollutants which I will outline uh, in due course. So what did we do? Well essentially we conducted a number of um, <coughs> experiments. Obviously we couldn't experiment in real life so essentially these are uh, comparative experiments, thought experiments about what might happen if you could introduce various policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, in these sectors, in these four sectors. In household energy and food and agriculture we undertook a comparison of the 2010 population with and without a specified intervention. The specified be intervention being one to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, towards um, international targets. The uh, business, uh, the transport and electricity generation uh, sectors, we use the 2010 population, which has the advantage of using a current population whose health we know about, but we used exposures from 2030 projections, in other words, projections that would, uh, of greenhouse gas emissions both business as usual, assuming no climate policies at all, versus strategies that would result in a radical reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And that we did in the transport and electricity generation sectors, because there we had some credible scenarios 
about how the transport and literacy generation sectors might evolve over the next few years. So we looked at changes in burden of disease and premature deaths averted. And for this presentation, we're going to focus on premature deaths averted because I think for a non-technical audience, that's an easier concept to, um, to address. And we used quite well-established methods adapted from the comparative risk assessment approach, which is one that's been advocated by the World Health Organization. So in summary, the UK Climate Change Committee has suggested that there needs to be an 80% cut in greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 baseline by 2050 for a country like the UK, an industrialised country. And that globally there needs to be a 50% reduction in global emissions from 1990 by 2050 if we're to have a reasonable chance of averting dangerous climate change, which is usually taken as a threshold of around uh, 2 degrees. And I think at the moment we're on a trajectory which would take us um, well over that. So we need to have radical reductions if we're going to reduce uh, the risk of that happening. So we then mapped pathways from greenhouse gas reduction or mitigation strategies, as they're widely known, to the health uh, impact. And we did a number of case studies to illustrate the health effects on the 2010 population under different future scenarios. We didn't have time or resources to model the whole world, so we had to focus on a number of credible um, case studies. First of all, household energy. We looked at two um, different uh, aspects of household energy. One was in low-income settings, and any of you who have been into a, into a house in a low-income country will note the tremendously high level of indoor air pollution, which you immediately experience when you walk into houses where poor communities live. And that's because of the incomplete combustion um, of often biomass fuels, wood, dung, crop residue, and so on, which causes very large, um, very high concentrations of indoor air pollutants and causes probably about 1.6 million deaths a year around the world, to, particularly to women and children. In high-income countries, obviously, the health effects are less, but in the UK and many other industrialised countries, we do have a problem with our outmoded housing stock, and this photo just shows you the loss of heat from a typical house um, from a thermal um, imaging camera. So we, we're very inefficient use of our uh, uh, indoor heating. So first of all, UK household energy. We looked at the potential to change insulation, ventilation control, fuel source and temperature setting, a number of different approaches. Uh, and we looked at what impact that would have on the 2010 population with and without the intervention. Exposures are listed there. I won't read them out. Fine particles, radon, particularly um, interesting. Radon is a gas that builds up in houses in uh, some parts of the UK. And the main outcomes we looked at were cardiorespiratory diseases, uh, lung cancer, and cold-related deaths. And we assessed that um, using a combined package of improvements for household energy efficiency, which would include much better insulation, uh, ventilation, uh, mechanical ventilation with heat recovery to improve uh, airflow, that we might be able to save perhaps 55 uh, megatons of CO2 saved, and possibly avert over 5,000 premature deaths uh, in, in, a, in a year uh, in the 2010 population by these particular measures. Obviously, there would be costs attached, and we can discuss those in the discussion um, period uh, if you want to know more about them. But they would also, of course, bring uh, reductions in fuel costs over time. Household energy. Um, there we looked at the impact of an improved clean-burning cook stove program with 150 million stoves being introduced over a 10-year period. 
That's not inconceivable. The Chinese had a similar sort of program of uh, introduction of cookstoves some years ago, which they also achieved over a 10-year period. We looked at the reduction in indoor exposure to combustion products that would occur, and we looked at a number of main outcomes, particularly respiratory tract infections in children, heart disease, and chronic lung disease, chronic obstructory pulmonary disease, particularly um, in women that are exposed over long periods. And what we found there is that uh, by 2020, we would avoid roughly 30% of the deaths from acute respiratory infections and from chronic um, airways disease, and a smaller proportion of deaths from ischemic heart disease. So overall, there might be perhaps um, 2 million or so um, avoided deaths over that decade by introducing that cookstove program. And also, there would be substantial benefits to greenhouse gas emissions. It's often been thought that with cookstoves, because people use biomass, that doesn't contribute to climate change, and that's now known to be incorrect. And the reason for that is that some of the pollutants that are produced, particularly black carbon, uh, are quite potent greenhouse gas pollutants, greenhouse pollutants. And also they can be deposited on glaciers, for example in the Himalayas, where they accelerate the, the melting of the glaciers. So through reducing a number of greenhouse gases and black carbon, you could perhaps get uh, the equivalent of half to one billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent over the decade of the uh, introduction of these cook stoves. And that would cost a modest amount, perhaps $50 per household every five years, so potentially highly cost-effective. Urban transport path pathways, there we looked at London and Delhi as two large uh, conurbations, and we looked at the impacts on air pollution, the impacts on road um, injuries, um, and the impacts of active, uh, more active um, transport, so in reducing the health burdens of in inactivity. This just gives an example of the London travel patterns. The red column is the baseline pattern of transport. The blue is a scenario which postulates not much change in transport patterns, but just lower carbon driving. In other words, better internal combustion engines with lower emissions. And then the third, the green one, looks at increased um, active travel, which is a strategy to uh, substantially increase walking um, and cycling over current uh, levels of walking and cycling. The health benefits in London um, are shown on this slide, and these are given in disability-adjusted life years per million, but um, it's more a matter of just get a visual impression of these. You can see that lower carbon driving brings some benefits, but fairly modest ones, from reductions in air pollution due to improved technologies. Perhaps we could get even more if we had electric-powered cars, but we didn't look specifically at that. But the, the one that has really the big impact is increased active travel. So it's by encouraging walking and cycling for short distances, under um, eight kilometres, uh, that one gets a real benefit uh, to health. And combining them, obviously, um, it uh, gives added benefit as well. So broadly, in terms of the health effects by health outcome or disease category, we see substantial reductions in ischemic heart disease, perhaps 10 to 19%, cerebrovascular disease, thus reducing the risk of stroke, dementia, some types of cancer, including breast cancer. Um, and these were all taken from established systematic reviews of the best available evidence about the links between activity and the health outcome. Road traffic crashes could increase as a result of increasing walking and cycling, but this would be far, the adverse effect, be far outweighed by the benefits as a result of other improvements in other conditions. So overall, a very positive um, impact on health. And of course, 
the impact on road uh, traffic uh, crashes could be ameliorated by improved policies to separate um, road traffic from those uh, walking and cycling. Delhi, uh, somewhat similar picture, slightly different effect there. Um, ischemic heart disease, again, uh, burden should be reduced substantially, perhaps by up to 25%. Cerebrovascular disease also. Road traffic crashes also reduce under this scenario, and James Woodcock can explain why that's so in the discussion period, but essentially different assumptions about um, changes in, uh, uh, in active transport and in transport flows in the Delhi scenario. Diabetes also reduced and depression modest reductions there. So again, substantial um, benefits from these uh, strategies implemented in a situation at a city like Delhi. Moving on to electricity generation. Um, here we looked at three broad regions, the EU, India and China, and we compared business as usual, in other words, a a world in which no impact was made on greenhouse gas emissions, it just went ahead um, as they might uh, unchecked, compared with a global mitigation target, including some carbon trading, uh, which resulted from more renewables, particularly in India and China, not so much in the EU where there's a high uh, baseline assumption, a business as usual assumption of renewables, some increase in nuclear, some coal with carbon capture and storage, which is still um, a technology under development, but certainly less coal in general. And we can discuss the, the details uh, in the question time. The, the most important aspect here was we looked at particulate air pollution, the changes in particulate air pollution that would occur from the changes in electricity generation uh, and the costs attributed to them. So the uh, different strategies, and this just is looking at one of the scenarios, the full trade where there's allowed to be a certain amount of carbon trading between high and low income countries. And what you can see is that there could be a radical reduction in emissions of carbon dioxide from electricity. In the case of the EU, um, more than a, a halving. case of China, compared with business as usual, a very great reduction indeed, and also a substantial reduction in the case of India. Uh, using these different um, approaches to generate uh, electricity. And what you can see that in terms of, is that in terms of premature deaths avoided by 2030, we might have perhaps over 90,000 in India, uh, just under 60,000 in China, and somewhat under 10,000 in the EU. And the reason for that, of course, is that the levels of air pollution in India and China are higher than those in the EU. So if you reduce the levels of air pollution further by uh, moving towards these new um, technologies, a different technology um, scenario, then obviously you're going to reduce the, the deaths further. But still uh, useful reductions in the EU. And the cost of mitigation um, is indeed partly outweighed by the um, uh, benefits of the health impacts. So in the case of the um, EU, there's a modest uh, reduction in health costs, only a modest one. In the case of, of China, there's a greater reduction in health costs. Uh, and in the case of India, an even greater one. This is using similar figures to that currently used by the EU in their air pollution policies. So it assumes that uh, they're all weighted equally across these different countries. So what you can see from this is that although there would be costs, certainly in some cases these will be partly offset by the benefits accruing as a result of reduced health impacts. Finally, in the food and agriculture sector, uh, we felt that we 
we had to include the food agriculture sector because that is responsible for perhaps 10 to 12 percent of global health, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. If you add in land use change, such as deforestation, then it's substantially more than that, maybe between 20 and 30 percent uh, overall. And of course, the total emissions are, from the sector are set to rise by perhaps 50,000 uh, by 2030, owing to growing demand for food. About 80% of those total emissions in the sector arise from processes involved in livestock production, so we focused particularly on those. The greenhouse gases involved are methane, particularly from ruminants, uh, nitrous oxide from fertilisers, and some CO2 as well from various farm, uh, the use of energy at the pre-farm and in-farm and post-farm processes. And these greenhouse gas emissions obviously contribute to climate change. At the same time, high intake of food from animal sources can contribute to various health outcomes, particularly um, cardiovascular disease, but also some cancers. And that's particularly thought to be through, um, in the case of heart disease, because of their relationship to saturated fat intake. So um, we modelled um, strategies to try and meet a UK target of 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, on 1990 levels by 2030. So that's part way towards that 80% reduction that the UK Climate Change Committee has said is necessary for the UK by 2050. We assumed agricultural technological improvements and from the evidence that was presented to us, we believe that these are necessary but may not be sufficient to meet the target. And the gap would be made up by about a 30% cut in animal product, uh, in, in livestock production in addition to these technological improvements. So the question is then, what impacts might that have on health? And we looked at two case studies. One was in the UK, and the other was in the city of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, and um, we made the assumption that the 30% reduction in livestock production would decrease consumption of animal source saturated fat by 30%. And we then estimated the association of the intake of animal source saturated fat with the risk of ischemic heart disease using established methods, and found that uh, there would be substantial benefits in the UK, perhaps a 15% reduction, Sao Paulo, something about the same in the burden of disease, and that would translate into about 18,000 premature deaths averted in the UK, and about 1,000 in uh, Sao Paulo. And then moving on to the fifth paper, this paper looked at the health implications of short-lived greenhouse gases. As I say, most of the attention has gone on to CO2 up to now, but these gases are important because they're major contributors to climate change and also they have quite important implications for human health. And it looked at three climate active pollutants, black carbon that I've already mentioned, ozone and sulfates. And it includes the first published study of the long-term health effects of black carbon using data from 66 American cities over a period of 18 years. Kirk Smith, who's the principal investigator on that paper, can't be with us. He's actually in Washington, but uh, Ross Anderson, one of the authors, is here today and can answer questions. Black carbon is damaging to health, was one of the conclusions. Certainly seems to be true. It's not clear whether that's more so than the kind of undifferentiated particles that are normally used in air pollution studies, um, but certainly they are damaging to health. And the study also adds to the evidence that ozone causes excess mortality independently from other pollutants. So the control of both black carbon, which arises from, partly from household energy, but also from other sectors, and ozone 
would both reduce climate change and benefit population health. And because they're short-lived, some of them only last for days, reductions in the emissions could immediately benefit climate, unlike with carbon dioxide, where obviously once the CO2 gets into the atmosphere, it's there for perhaps 100 years or so. In the case of sulfate, sulfate's an interesting problem because sulfate particles are actually cooling. They're cooling aerosol, and so... Um, the question is, we need to reduce sulfates because they are damaging to health, and in fact they seem more damaging to health than um, undifferentiated particles, in contrast to some of the lab results. Um, but um, in doing so, that will contribute more to climate change because they'll re remove their cooling impact on the atmosphere. So the implication is we shouldn't stop our uh, efforts to control sulfates, but by doing so, we'll also mean that even more radical reductions in greenhouse gas emissions will be required. And there's an interesting sideline to this. Some people have proposed that we should inject, um, there should be geoengineering schemes to inject sulphate into the atmosphere to cool the planet more. And the conclusion was that we don't yet know the health impacts of that, and we should proceed with caution. So what are the action points arising from this uh, body of work? Well, firstly, policymakers should take into account the health co-benefits and harms where they do arise, when considering different options to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Research funders need to support collaboration between health and other scientists to investigate the impacts of these strategies further to tackle climate change. Health policymakers should encourage behavioural changes that improve health and meet climate goals. And health professionals should advocate and educate to promote the achievement of benefits for health and climate based on the best research <coughs> evidence. In conclusion, then, the UN Framework Convention seeks to protect three things, the environment, economic development, and human health. The health gains associated with climate change mitigation policies have received very little attention up to now, and they must feature more prominently in the discussions at the forthcoming Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen. Many thanks to Andy Haynes and to Richard Horton and to you all for listening. See you next time.